0: This is Hot Politics. I'm David Mackay. Welcome to Episode 3, Fighting for Nature. Two major climate conferences in the past month tried to make a big leap in stopping global warming and saving nature. At November's COP27 in Egypt, negotiators went down to the last minute, but there was an agreement to create what's called a loss and damage fund. This will be used to help developing countries who don't contribute much to the Earth's warming, but are hit hard by climate disasters. Major flaw in the agreement? The amount of money pledged by a handful of nations, including Canada, is nowhere near the $100 billion that's needed. So, as usual, the devil is in the details. COP15, the Conference on Biodiversity, has ended. It was jointly hosted by China and Canada. Part 1 took place in China last fall, but COVID restrictions in that country threatened to force a cancellation of Part 2. Canada stepped up to host so the possibility of an agreement would not be delayed. COP15's main goal was to protect and restore nature and stop the extinction of species. But biodiversity didn't attract the star power of world leaders. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was the only leader at the opening ceremonies.
1: I don't have to tell any of you here this afternoon that nature is under threat. In fact, it's under attack.
0: The Prime Minister had barely begun when he was faced with a group of young people from the common First Nation in British Columbia. They were calling for Indigenous people to be part of a biodiversity agreement, a demand that would come up over and over again at the conference. The Prime Minister waited patiently for the protesters to finish before continuing.
1: We're gathered today because this isn't work we or any one country can do alone. The world's five biggest countries, Russia, Canada and China, the two countries involved in hosting this meeting, the US and Brazil represent over 50% of the world's forests. Canada has the world's longest coastline. Russia has the world's largest boreal forest, and the world's largest wetland, the Pantanal, is primarily in Brazil. That's a big responsibility for big countries. And progress is being made, no doubt, but of the world's five biggest countries, none of us is yet at 30% of both our land and waters protected. We don't have to get all the way there by tomorrow, but by 2030, we all really do. By 2030, we must halt and reverse biodiversity loss. Now, there are lots of disagreements between governments, but if we can't agree as a world, on something as fundamental as protecting nature, well, nothing else matters.
0: UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres laid out what's at stake.
2: Prime Minister Trudeau, Excellencies, dear friends, nature is humanity's best friend. Without nature, we have nothing. Without nature, we are Nothing. Nature is our life support system. It is the source and sustainer of the air we breathe, the food we eat, the energy we use, the jobs and economic activity we count on, the species that enrich human life, and the landscapes and waterscapes we call home.
0: As he did at COP27, The Secretary General gave a scathing assessment of our role in destroying the things that keep us alive.
2: And yet, humanity seems hell-bent on destruction. We are waging war on nature. And this conference is about the urgent task of making peace. Because today, we are out of harmony with nature. And when we clear targets, benchmarks, and accountability. No excuses, no delays. Promises made must be promises kept.
0: We're in a cavernous media room at COP15 in Montreal's Palais de Congrès, where reporters have been attending news conferences, filing stories, chasing down sources. National Observer reporter Natasha Bolowski joins me now. Natasha, I think we know that nature is under siege. And that's a bad thing because nature plays a vital role in fighting climate change. And according to Antonio Guterres, it is worse than that. We're at war with nature, and we need to make peace. So, how is the world going to use this conference to make peace with nature?
3: Well, I mean, accelerating biodiversity loss, it poses an existential threat to humanity, and scientists broadly agree that we need to protect at least 30% of the Earth's land and waters by 2030. And so this 30 by 30 goal is said to be really the cornerstone of a strong global biodiversity framework, uh, which will essentially guide global action on halting and reversing nature loss uh, by 2030. Also on the agenda, you know, it is ending subsidies that harm nature, so things like fossil fuel subsidies, unsustainable fishing, agriculture. Um, And then there's some more complicated, uh, but still thorny issues around making sure countries are adequately compensated for discoveries, maybe pharmaceutical, that are based on genetic resources found within their borders. But really one of the, you know, the titular issue is the 30 by 30 target.
0: So, what needs to be done to reach that?
3: There's lots of momentum around the thirty by thirty goal, especially from Canada um, as a host as the host country. We've committed to achieving that within our own borders, and we've really been building our conservation efforts around Indigenous protected and conserved areas. Uh, which has garnered us some praise. But there are very real concerns at the international level about whether indigenous rights will be respected as countries pursue 30 by 30. There's also um, some issues remaining around how countries will be able to fund that, especially poorer countries who have incredible amounts of biodiversity within their borders.
0: Many ministers, commissioners, and activists on the climate and environment scene attended. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood out as the only world leader at the conference. Does it really matter uh, whether leaders show up?
3: I think it depends who you ask, really. Uh, Part of the fuss around um, world leaders being or not being here is because at the recent climate conference in Egypt, COP27, More than 100 heads of state, including uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, attended at some point or another. And, you know, environmental organizations, they've been saying that China's decision to not invite world leaders to Montreal downplays COP15's importance. And, you know, when world leaders get involved, uh, people pay attention. It does make news. So in in raising the profile, I I see that argument. On the other end, though, like in November, some ex-heads of state published a letter that similarly argued that from their experience in these situations, um, at high-stakes negotiations, that it is important for leaders to be there. But then Canadian Environment Minister Stephen Guibault said that because leaders aren't in the building, it doesn't mean that delegates won't be in constant contact with them in order to reach those agreements. Also a factor, I think, is that this huge conference was really thrown together with with only five or so months' notice, so perhaps that's a factor.
0: Okay, stand by, Natasha. We'll come back to you in a little while to wrap things up.
3: Sounds good, David.
0: Last week, Canada and the European Union sat down with me during the conference to talk about the projects they're collaborating on to support nature. The live recorded discussion was a collaboration between Canada's national observer and the delegation to the European Union in Canada. I was joined by Vitiginius Sinkevicius, the EU Commissioner for the Environment, Oceans and Fisheries, and Canada's Environment Minister, Stephen Guilbeault. I began the conversation by asking Guilbeault about the nature of the collaboration between Canada and the European Union.
4: As an environmental activist, I was such a big fan of the European Union and in international forums. They, they've been a, a, a positive force for, for, for change, pushing the envelope, pushing countries to do more. And, and frankly, when countries started realizing that it wouldn't be able to, to, to hold it in China, and, and the Chinese, in fact, said that we don't think we can do it this, this year, uh, the commissioner was one of the first one to say, okay, well, maybe, what about doing it in Canada?
5: We are facing, you know, the, the triple planetary crisis of uh, climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution that cannot be tackled by a city, by a country, and even by a region. It's been always great to meet uh, Minister. First time we've met in, in, at G7 in, in Berlin, and already then we, we, we spoke about those like-minded ideas on which we can uh, build our uh, partnership across the uh, Atlantic Ocean.
0: I want to stay with you, Minister. What can you accomplish together that you couldn't on your own? As the commissioner
4: said, climate change, nature loss, fighting pollution, these are issues that are too big for any single country. And, and, and I'm having similar conversation with China. China's the you know largest emitter of greenhouse gas in the world, second largest economy. They can't do it on their own. And, and we need to be able to, to work together. We need to find solutions to complicated and complex problems. But in a way, I suppose in a good way, we are condemned to, to, to be able to find solutions together because these problems are just too big for any single country or, or region, as the commissioner said, to tackle on its own.
5: In many of those areas that we seek to protect the most biodiverse places on earth, we still have you know, indigenous people living and they have to be also uh, part of the solution. But you know, the work doesn't end at, at COP15. I hope that we will be able to, to, to achieve and, and walk out of the, the room just before Christmas with, with ambitious uh, agreement. So how do Canadians benefit from this partnership? In so
4: many different ways. Uh, the European Union tends to be at the, at the forefront of, of environmental regulations on, on so many different things. And often when we want to see how can, we, how can we do better in Canada, we look at what Europe is doing and say, oh, they're doing this, you know, we, sh- we should be doing that. I mean, you've had a price on pollution in, in the European Union since middle of the 2000s. Uh, we've had a price on pollution in Canada starting in 2019. So we are playing catch-up.
0: That's just a portion of the conversation between Canada's Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo and his counterpart at the European Union, Commissioner Vitiginius Sinkevicius. If you want to see the full conversation, go to our website, nationalobserver.com, and click on conversations. After the panel discussion, we were able to squeeze in a few extra minutes with Minister Gilbo about the announcements made at COP15 related to Indigenous lands and for Indigenous groups.
4: There's no path to us protecting at least 30% of our lands and waters without the involvement of Indigenous people from the get-go at the decision-making table which is why the Prime Minister and I uh, announced this historic uh, investment of $800 million in four uh, Indigenous-led conservation projects. They're very large. like We're talking about 1 million square kilometer uh, of protected lands in in Canada. I I don't think people realize sometimes what a challenge it is for Canada to protect 30% of our lands. Um, It is is the equivalent of protecting the entirety of the lands of the European Union and its 27 member states. That's what we're trying to do in Canada. But but for us to do that, we need to do it with Indigenous people. The government of Canada is, is working really hard to change the nature of our relationship with Indigenous people. We see conservation as, as one of the elements, and I'd say a, a, a necessary element of, of, of reconciliation. The That's... Indigenous Guardians Network.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little
4: bit about that. What is that? That is probably one of the most amazing programs that the federal government um, uh, has ever done and frankly we 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 don't deserve credit because it's not it, it wasn't our idea it was indigenous people's ideas and and we just embraced it it's a very unique program where it's not ottawa knows best and we'll tell you what to do it's a program where indigenous people communities indigenous nations come to us and say this is what we want to be supported in in, in our community so we started with a pilot project of of $27 million. We're now close to $200 million for the Guardians program. We we made an announcement last week that we were going to fund a national network of Indigenous Guardians initiatives so that
0: they can learn from each other. But there's also a balancing act here, right? You know, some Indigenous groups might argue that they should have veto power over these kinds of decisions. Where does that balance come in between giving Indigenous peoples the right you know, to control but as a government saying, well, sometimes you can't just say no.
4: It's not about giving anyone a, a veto power, but 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 I think it's about ensuring that when we develop new policies, when we're thinking about new projects, we've we've reformed impact assessment in in, in Canada to ensure that we do true Indigenous consultations, that we include Indigenous knowledge in the scientific body that we use for decision making now at the federal level. Not about them having veto over thing but, but it's having real government-to-government-to-government discussions and decision-making with them.
0: Later, I caught up with Green Party leader Elizabeth May at a news conference at the COP15 venue. Ms. May, we spoke to the Environment Minister and his EU counterpart uh, this morning who said that they were con- optimistic that there would be a successful revo- uh, resolution. What is your assessment of what that resolution will look like and whether or not it will be a success.
4: D- David, I have to say, we're this has to succeed. It, it, we've never had this large a biodiversity cop ever since, since the first ones in the 90s. And this one being in Montreal, I'd say the positive sign is that from everything we can see, our minister, Stephen Gibo and the Chinese presidency are working well together There's goodwill between Canada and China at the working level here, despite all the other geopolitical stresses. But without financing, I don't see a deal.
0: About 500 people representing Indigenous nations or organizations came from all over the world to attend the meeting. But none of the Indigenous nations were at the table. So they were left to hold news conferences and take part in discussion groups. And as the days went by, it was very clear that their concerns were not getting through to the negotiators. Here are some of the voices from a news conference held by Indigenous peoples from Canada, Ecuador, Peru, and Brazil. Some of the voices are heard through a translator.
3: This is about land back. For centuries, Indigenous peoples have been squeezed into smaller and smaller pieces of land, and yet those pieces of land are still being taken and stolen from us. What land back means to us is the freedom. It's democracy. It's our voices being heard. We have to have you know specific
1: language around getting out of our way so we can do the work that our ancestors have been doing for thousands of years that we already know how to do.
3: And we demand that Indigenous peoples have the full and effective participation of any decision-making process at all UN meetings and fora. Using the principles of free, prior, and informed consent as stated in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and International Human Rights Norms. There is no time to wait for targets as action is needed now.
1: I agree with my sister here. Uh, For example, in Ecuador, we have a really powerful law in the Constitution around the rights of nature. But these laws are not being implemented. What's missing is action. And call on everyone to say that it's not a moment to fight. It's a moment to unite. It's a moment to work together in a joint force for the well-being and common interests of all. Thank you so much.
0: National Observer reporter Mateo Similero was talking with some of the indigenous delegates. He joins me now. Those voices we heard—they had a lot to say about how governments have ignored their concerns when it comes to conservation and protection of nature. What role do indigenous communities play in conserving the environment?
6: Indigenous peoples have known for for millennia that nature and human beings are not separate. You know, they're they're part of the same ecosystem they're part of the same natural world and so indigenous land management it's a natural process you know it's not like conservation is humans letting nature do whatever indigenous peoples known that that's that's simply wrong and you're going to run into a lot of problems with that you know so when we speak about conservation we need to be speaking about indigenous rights and and that's what i've been hearing talking to indigenous peoples they're worried that 30 by 30, without respecting Indigenous rights,
0: will remove them from, from the land. So when you hear all that, that's that's really important, Mateo. And, I, and I'm just wondering, were Indigenous organizations part of the negotiations for a biodiversity agreement?
6: In terms of these kind of high-level negotiations, no. There's no seat at the table. There's no voting power. There's no veto power. But it's getting better. There's consultation um, between delegates or between countries and and indigenous peoples you know in in the in those countries and it's getting better also because indigenous peoples are organizing i mean the indigenous contingents globally are in solidarity with each other they're organizing they're they have their elbows up and, and they're trying to get a seat at this table
0: so given what you've just said mateo I, you know i guess what i think about is under it and UNDRIP, of course, is the acronym that means the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It was adopted by the UN in 27. Um, It lays out government's relationships to indigenous peoples, and a key element is the requirement to consult on issues of importance to indigenous peoples. More than 145 countries have signed UNDRIP. Given this right, should indigenous representatives have been at the table?
6: You know, obviously, logistically, you might have some arguments, well, there's so many indigenous nations, how can you expand that? But I think we also have to remember, you know, what happened back in 2007 and who voted against UNDRIP. Four countries, United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada voted against UNDRIP. Fast forward, and now Canada has enshrined the United Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples in law, but that law still does not have veto power. It's just the obligation to consult. So there's still not equal shared decision-making on the nation-to-nation level. The only thing that's pushing this this conversation forward is indigenous solidarity. It's global indigenous peoples organizing, sharing experiences and practices on how to manage and, and how to push their states for their rights me being here for for a number of days and having many conversations with global indigenous peoples and and that's the sense, you know, it's each year indigenous peoples are are pushing for, for greater say, a greater voice, greater power at these international bodies because they know that these international bodies set the standards globally. And so when their voices, when their rights, when their lands are included, nations need to pay attention.
0: National Observer reporter Natasha Bolowski joins us again. Natasha, you know, there's sometimes there's an accusation that these conferences, they never accomplish enough, right? The, their promises are too vague. There's no one to hold countries to account for promises. So, how would you evaluate what happened here?
3: Well, I think that's both an easy and a fair accusation to make, uh, considering that the gravity of both the biodiversity and climate crisis. You know, it poses such a threat to all of us. Uh, We need so much action and so quickly in order to ensure that we have a livable planet. And anything less is really a death sentence for a lot of life on Earth. Some scientists, you know, they're warning that we're on the brink of another mass extinction event. Um, The last one being some 65 million years ago when an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs you know the pessimism around these international agreements and forums is understandable given what we're up against they they leave a lot to be desired always but that's how you start moving the political lever there are also other levers to pull Uh, indigenous people civil society groups and scientists are working tirelessly to push for that accountability piece that as you note is so often missing or or vague
0: So really, it's managing expectations, right? Uh, You can never really win. Some people think that you're going too fast. Other people, you're not fast enough because so much is at stake.
3: Yeah, there's some truth to that. And some people will say, you know, perfect is the enemy of, of good. And I think that we shouldn't let that limit what we're pushing for uh, and, I th- and i think that's the role that some of those other groups um you, you know civil society and indigenous people are playing is they're making sure that we're not just settling for good and that we're striving as much as always for perfect it, it's complicated getting all of these countries on the same page and so uh, managing expectations is a is a fair way to put it um, and i think we'll sort of see the results of that with this agreement
0: natasha and mateo thank you very much i know you've worked really hard at this conference there are a lot of moving parts and you guys have done a great job thanks a lot
3: thanks a lot david yeah
0: thanks for having me david delegates at cop 15 reached what many are calling an historic agreement during the wee hours of monday morning based on what we were hearing on the weekend there were no surprises there's the requirement for countries to conserve 30 percent of nature by 2030 the so-called 30 by 30 target And there was a recognition that respecting and recognizing the rights of indigenous peoples and reaching that target is key. Finally, there was money on the table to help make all of this happen. Tens of billions of dollars from wealthy countries like Canada to help the conservation efforts of developing countries. Early reaction from a number of environmental groups is positive. So we'll see where all of this goes. But as we know, the devil is in the details. That's it for the third episode of Hot Politics. I'm David Mackay. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcasts. Every donation helps. Please rate us a 5 on Apple. Tell your friends. We want everyone to find us hot politics is produced by canada's national observer our managing producer for podcasts is sandra bartlett associate producer zara Kozama. the executive editor of canada's national observer is karen priese our publisher is linda solomon wood i'm david Mackay. we'll be back in 2023 see you then